0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio.
1: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 196.
0: Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host,
1: Matt Goudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 196 you're listening to. My guest today is Adam Rossi. Adam is a music and sound producer working out of San Francisco, Uh, works with a lot of bands, works with some companies doing some sound design, does some VR work. Uh, He started diversifying long ago, so his world is comprised of many things, and that has really allowed him to thrive in the Bay Area, which has... uh, you know, that's uh, no easy feat. So Adam Rossi coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, grab your coffee. I'm going to ramble a little bit. So just, you know, don't mind me. So as you were. Mm. got my coffee. All right, so restaurants and, and sound. Let's talk about it. Um, I'm going to include this article. It's actually from the Meyer Sound website. Meyer Sound, of course, Bay Area institution, sound company. They, of course, uh, have been around for quite a long time, and uh, so anyhow, point is is that they have been teaming up with restaurants uh, to really take the technology that they've developed, which is kind of a combination of acoustic panels, you know, acoustic treatment, along with a series of microphones and little speakers, and they create these environments in restaurants where you can actually hear what the hell you're saying to the person across the table from you and also you can control the atmosphere this this article really explains it a hell of a lot better than i am right now but i'll include the article you check it out but i'm sure that you all are aware of when you go to restaurants and it's just you know the food may be good like i went to a place last night in um california and the food was great Italian place. I can't even remember the name. Food was great. Servers were great. You know, good good service all the way around. However, it was loud as hell. Very difficult to hear. And uh, it just, it's, it's like an assault on the senses. So it seems that some restaurants are really recognizing that. Uh, I think generally more experienced restaurant owners are, you know, realizing that you know, doesn't matter if your food's great. If your environment is lousy, it's it's no fun to be there. So, anyhow, check out the article. That'll probably get you going on looking up some other stuff. But that's one aspect that, I, or one thing I wanted to bring up today. Also, want to remind you, because I'm holding the box here, that uh, I mentioned it in the last episode. Backblaze saved my ass. I'm holding the hard drive that they FedExed me of my data, and they had to do that because my little raid setup, my drobo did one of the one or two of the drives died all at once and it just shot the whole thing down so um i don't want to get into the rabbit hole with that discussion but suffice it to say that uh all i did was go on tell backblaze hey i need a copy of my stuff they fedexed it and they sold me a drive and i'll return it and they'll give me my money back the interesting thing was is that when the drive came it was password protected so if the drive got into somebody else's hands they would definitely have to know a hell of a lot about me to figure out the password or be a pretty smart hacker you know i don't think anything's unhackable but uh anyhow a level of security there on a number of fronts so i'm going to include a link in the show notes just as a reminder to you that backblaze man it's a good good system to employ in your backup scheme Uh, One other thing I want to tell you about, I'm going to include a link also in the show notes for this. Uh, Tom Kenny over at uh, Mix Magazine. Uh, Tom did a article on artificial intelligence in pro audio, and I'm actually seeing that article here on prosoundnetwork.com. I'm going to include a link to that. I want you to check that out just to, you know, stir your brain a bit. Uh, I don't know much about it, to be honest with you, but I figured I would, uh, you know, turn you on to it, something to think about. Uh, all these emerging technologies and possibilities for audio professionals there's uh, there's work to be had on the horizon for sure so um stay informed and don't get complacent let's uh you know keep up to date with what's going on out there all right let's finish this coffee I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. They, of course, help make the working class audio podcast possible. They're located at uaudio.com. And maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but uh, they have just recently introduced the new Apollo X series of Thunderbolt 3 audio interfaces. These feature uh, new converters as well as uh, what they're calling hexacore processing. That's basically six shark chips inside. Uh, That'll give me a little more power. Plus, they have the ability to do surround sound right out of the box. And uh, they come in a variety of uh, different configurations. Uh, There's the X6, the X8, the X8P, and the X16. So check those out. Those are at uaudio.com. Those look great. Yeah. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at gearsluts.com, who also help make the podcast possible. And uh, we help them out by sponsoring the Audio Live Sub Forum, where you can check out other discussions that have nothing to do with gear. How about that? On Gear Sluts, yeah. Nothing to do with gear, right? <laughs> you can talk about life and life hacks and all kinds of different stuff, all, all the same stuff we talk about here. Check that out. That's at Gearsluts.com. Yeah, that's it. I got nothing else to say, so uh, I figure we might as well get on the line here and uh, talk to our friend Adam Rossi. So let's do that. Adam Rossi here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. All right, Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for
0: having me. Appreciated. Pleasure to have you
1: on. So, where'd you grow up?
0: Where'd you start? Uh, I actually grew up in Palo Alto. I'm a I'm a native, so I grew up down in the area. Actually, it's funny because I went to school down at Palo Alto High and grade school at Green Gables and Jordan Middle School. And I'm a total Palo Alto graduate. And it's funny because the guy that really influenced me that I saw first in eighth grade was Eric Valentine <laughs> playing, playing drums in a band at lunchtime. <laughs> and it blew my mind when, when I saw this kid playing this enormous drum kit and playing this metal, and it was just it was just mind-blowing.
1: And that was Eric Valentine?
0: That was Eric Valentine. His name back then was Eric Dodd, and I believe he was playing in this trio with his brother, whose his brother's a fantastic guitar player, uh, David Dodd. And I can't remember who the singer was, but I just remember him sitting behind the kit and it was a massive drum kit. And he was just doing the most incredible drum parts I had ever heard. Anyway, that just blew my mind. And I remember sitting with him in the band room in eighth grade and he was playing like a bass drum in the back. And I could tell he was bored out of his skull sitting there just playing this bass drum and just going, oh my God, what am I doing here? And I think I was doing the same thing. I was playing trumpet and just miserable. I hated it, you know. So <laughs> anyway, that was my, my Palo Alto upbringing. Was, um, he was one of the guys that I saw that really influenced me to really get into this, this business. But I didn't realize I was going to do it until much later. I, I yeah, didn't I was re- going to
1: say, so, so music started, started you off on your path.
0: It did, but I didn't really get serious about it. I played music in high school. You know, we had the garage bands in mom's house and my brothers played. Uh, My brother was a drummer. Uh, My other brother, uh, Jay, was a guitar player. Uh, So I was kind of the tag along. I just kind of went along with whatever they were doing.
1: Well, so at what point did audio become a possibility for you? What point did it show itself as anything of importance to you?
0: I don't think it was a conscious decision ever. It just kind of naturally happened for me when we were hanging out as kids in the garage and and playing music, and then eventually someone said, we need to record, we need to get this recorded. And I go, okay, well, let's figure out how to do that. And I found uh, one of those Tascam Porta 5s, and I said, this might do the job, and bought one of those little cassette recorders. And it was never really something that I said, I need to be doing this. I need to be doing this. It was almost like a natural progression where it, it just started happening and I started doing it and I was, got really interested in it. And I started subscribing to these hi-fi magazines and saying, this is cool. Now I need to get a better, a better a pair of speakers, you know, and I started building up little by little. And there was a there was a, uh, what was, there was a, um, Catalog called BSR. Do you ever remember that? Vaguely. For
1: me, the catalog uh when I was growing up was JR Music World out in out of New York. Even though I was in New Mexico, JR Music World catalogs would come to the house. I think because of one of my brothers.
0: I think it was called BSR. Anyway, I ordered a pair of speakers from them. I don't even remember what they were called, like design acoustics or something. And it was my first set of hi-fi speakers you know i mean I, i wasn't super serious about it but it just kind of kept building up and i kept wanting to get better equipment and better things and
1: let me ask you about that now what how old were
0: you then oh this is the high school yeah this is high school
1: what was it that was driving those desires to upgrade equipment at that time
0: i think it was listening to records and wanting to hear the sound of the records, you know, again, I was a tag along and my brothers were listening to weird stuff. My oldest brother, Scott, was listening to a lot of funk and, and uh, George Clinton. And I was listening to those records that he had, but he was also listening to Gary Newman and Depeche Mode and, um, you know, electronic records that were really kind of weird. And I just got into the sounds of those records and I started to look at who was making the records and I don't know why. I just was interested in finding out who how the records were made and who were the people behind the records. L- Human league, I was listening to them and realizing that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were were making those records. And it was like, wow, these guys are amazing and and they're doing incredible work and so i i guess i just started digging into it that way you know tell me about the progression did it did it did that continue it it did but again i wasn't serious about it i was just having fun with it and i think by the time i finished high school i had had enough of high school and was not interested in continuing on <laughs> with school i had had enough of that so i took some time off and i traveled in europe a bit and once I got done with my travels, I realized I better do something with my life. And that's when I got serious about it. That's when I, when I got back from Europe, I decided it's time to go to school and, and really get serious about this. There was really nothing else I was really interested in. So I I went to Foothill um, and I started studying at Foothill and they had an electronic music program there. I started getting into music and music production and took the basic coursework and they had a basic studio there, not much, but it was, I think they had a old Yamaha uh, drum machine and a DX7. And, and uh, so I went there for a couple of semesters and then I found Chico State, which had a full-on uh, recording program. And it was the first one ever uh, accredited university to have a, a recording program. And so that's, that's why I went there because it was the first one I wanted to get a college education. I wanted to be in, in, a, in a college environment and Chico was it, and it was the only one that offered a degree in recording at that time. This was 80, 87, maybe eighty, yeah, eighty-seven or eighty-eight. I think is when I went there because I transferred from uh, from Foothill. So, and they had they had an amazing program. The program was incredible, and we were the first graduating class from that program. They had an analog room with a you know twenty-four track, two-inch, and I think it was a Soundcraft console, and they had a computer room with, with I think, early versions of, what was it, Sound Designer? What was it called? Sound Tools?
1: I'm going to say Sound Tools because I don't think Sound Designer came until a little bit later.
0: Yeah, I think it was Sound Tools. It was just a two-track deal. They had sequencers in there. I think they had early version of Performer, I want to say. It was either Performer or Vision the coolest thing they had was a synclavier that they had got, so they wow. they had a synclavier that I don't know how they 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 got all this stuff, but anyway, it was in a separate room, and it was like the holy grail. everyone wanted to get into that room and get into the Sinclair room. (laughs) So my teacher uh, at the time said, yeah, why don't you go in there and check it out? And of course I had no idea where to even start on that beast. It was just a huge machine. What were your
1: goals at Chico State at that time? As you're in the program, are you thinking ahead or are you just like immersed in what you're doing at the time?
0: I think it was a combination of both when I was going to Chico. You're just trying to get through your coursework and learn as much as possible but then you're also thinking about, well, how am I going to get a gig? You know, what am I going how am I going to work after this? Where am I, where, where are my contacts going to come from? And I had none at the time. You're just going to school and, and learning and doing all that stuff. But in the meantime, you're thinking, well, I got to make a living in recording at some point. So, so I was thinking about it. I was conscious w- about it. And there was one guy in the program who happened to be the son of uh, Arnie Frager, who owned the plant. So Josh Frager was in my class, and I had met him in the program. And I go, oh, okay. Well, your dad owns the plant. Can you get me an interview? <laughs> so, and this was kind of later on. This was like, um, this was towards the end of the of the program. So I had no prospects. He was the first one. He goes, yeah, sure. I'll get you an interview with him, with my dad. I said, great. And he was kind enough to uh, to set that up for me. And I think one summer I went down there. To the plant in Sausalito. And uh, I walked in the door, and Arnie sat me down in his office. And he said, uh, Why do you want to be in this business? And I said, Well, I, you know, really enjoy the process of recording and I enjoy music and I really want to do this for my career. And he said, You don't want to do this. This is a horrible business. It's terrible, it's long <laughs> hours. It's uh, no money. It's, uh, it's really a thankless job. You're going to have no life. It's, I mean, he just went on and on. And by the end of the interview, I was walking out of there with my tail between my legs, just saying, oh, my God, <laughs> do I really want to do this? <laughs> so he scared the shit out of me. It's funny because years later, literally like two years ago, I'm playing a gig up at uh, Rancho Nicasio with Jeffrey Halford. And we finished the gig and Jeffrey's talking to a gentleman at the bar and he said, Adam, you got to come over and meet this guy. And I walk up and who is it? It's Arnie Prager. (laughs) And of course, I told I told him the story. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) I was going to say. Yeah, I told him the story and he's, oh, my God, I'm sorry. I apologize. It was pretty it was pretty funny. But uh you know needless to say i'm still in the business still doing it he didn't scare me that bad
1: i was going to say so what did you what did you do after this conversation with arnie i don't
0: i don't think i i was scared initially but i realized i mean you have to keep going you have to you have to get work you have to figure out what you're going to do with this degree and i really wanted to work so i i just kept making contacts and kept meeting people and so kind of back to the story about eric He was in that band T-Ride at the time, and this is around 1991 when I graduated. And he had his studio HOS in Menlo Park that was right around the corner from where I lived. And a friend of mine was recording a record there. His name was Brian Eda, and Brian was a musician at the time. Now he's, he's an accomplished painter down in L.A. But at the time, he was making a record at Eric's studio. And I was friends with Brian, and I said, Brian, can I hang out with you? And he said, yeah, of course. And and so I would hang out with Brian at Eric's studio. And there was another engineer there named Mike Martin. He was the other engineer doing other projects at Eric's studio at the time because Eric was busy with uh, T-Ride and getting that happening. And so I started hanging out with Mike Martin and kind of learning from him and just being a fly on the wall. And these guys were nice enough to let me hang out at HOS. And I just... Kept my mouth shut and watched everything that everybody was doing. And they never kicked me out. <laughs> they just let me hang out. And eventually, I, I think I just started cleaning Neve modules and cleaning the bathroom and just making myself useful. And, and it was an amazing experience to watch those guys work. And uh, I think eventually I, I started working with Mike on the second Paris record. So Paris was recording there. He was a, a rapper who Eric had worked with. And then I think Eric passed off the second album to Mike. And so Mike was working on, uh, was it Sleeping With The Enemy, which was his second album. And I just got to hang out and see that process and just be there and be, again, a fly on the wall. But I started contributing a little bit more to that. And uh, it was just a fantastic experience. and I'm kind of grateful they let me hang out there and just watch what was going on.
1: Do you have any uh, memories of your observations, of things that stick with you to this day that you remember about those experiences, of 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 their methods of working, or anything specific like that?
0: i I remember Mike Martin being very meticulous. I mean, very, very into the craft. It was not spoken. You just kind of watch and see what was going on. There was not a lot of discussion about things. It was just kind of get to work and try this. And Again, I was so green at that time that I was just happy to be in the room. So anything that I saw that happened, I would would just kind of soak it in and try to learn as much. As far as specific techniques, I think I once saw them, you know, put a microphone to get the Leslie effect, they just grabbed a microphone and just swung it around in a circle <laughs> in front of the amp to get the you know the Leslie effect. and it was just stuff crazy stuff like that that they were doing. And I'm sure there was much more of it than that I did not get to witness. But the fact, that they said, we're going to do this ourselves. We're going to get all the money from the record company. We're going to build our own studio. And we're going to do all the recording, all the production ourselves, because we can. And that, to me, was kind of a big deal, that overall idea that we don't need to go into a massive studio. We can build this ourselves, and we have good ideas, and we're going to try to accomplish the, this goal ourselves. And and they did. It was an incredible record those guys put out, T-Rides, um, their first record was amazing, and then the stuff that Mike Martin was working on was amazing. and And Mike ended up getting into video production, and he ended up moving to L.A. and working on a lot of huge rap videos. and He started a video production company down in L.A. I'm not sure he's working in the business business anymore, but uh, yeah, he was he was pretty phenomenal. Those guys were all incredibly talented. You
1: know, at what point did you
0: cross over into doing it? as a business for yourself. I worked for a while. That was my first internship was with, with those guys. The next one, I had a girlfriend at the time who's a friend of hers, had a boyfriend who was working in the business. So again, I kind of made another connection and started uh, hanging out with him. His name was uh, Jay Shilliday and Jay was in post-production. He was at a studio called um, Focused Audio. I don't know if you remember them. They were on Natoma Street, uh, like 6th and Natoma. No. So Focused Audio was um, was a, a a film and TV post house. And uh, there were three guys there. Jeff Roth was the owner. Jay Shilliday was the head engineer. And uh, Mark Pittman was another engineer there. And they were working on everything, TV commercials. They were doing film post, a lot of ADR. In fact, they worked on... Um, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and did a bunch of voiceover for that film and some other films. And so they were kind of busy in that world. And again, I was an intern there hanging out, you know, doing my time, just getting coffee and doing what I needed to do and cleaning bathrooms and just watching the way the process worked then there was another company within that building called Interactive Audio, and they rented two rooms from Jeff Roth. And those guys were doing some interesting stuff. It was an audio company, but they were more interested in technology. So they got into the video game business. Um, and those guys, that was Gary Levenberg, ran that company, Interactive Audio. And there were a couple composers there who worked with him. One was Nick Tenbrook and um, J.D. Riley, And <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm interning with Focused Audio and hanging out in their sessions, kind of being the the second engineer, not really doing much, but I remember one time when they were working on a TV spot and they needed a piece of music. And I had been there for some months, and I remember kind of anticipating the fact that they needed a little bit of music, and I knew the guys next door had a little MIDI studio, so I ran next door and I composed something real quick And it was just a little short piece of music, and I brought it back into the room. I said, hey, you guys, how about this? And I presented this little piece of music for a TV spot, and they go, hey, that's perfect. That sounds great. And they dropped it in, and it was like didn't seem to be a big deal at the time. But it ended up getting me the gig at Interactive Audio, which was the company right next door to Focused Audio. And that was my first paying gig, was working for Interactive Audio.
1: You have an incredible memory for the names of the people that you worked with in the past. These were
0: mentors to me. They were it was I remember these people because they were they were important uh to me in my career. Especially Nick Tenbrook, he was he was a big influence on me. And to this day I keep in touch with him. He's a film composer down in LA now and does does album projects and film work and TV work and he's been such an inspiration to me over the years and and uh just the experiences that I got working with him were were just amazing, you know. Just I learned so much working with those guys. I mean, I try to take something from everyone I'm working with. It's I think you can do that if you're in the right frame of mind, you can you can learn from anybody you're you're working with. You just have to be open, yeah. you know.
1: What are some of the things that you remember off the top of your head from say
0: Nick? Well, Nick was he was fantastic in the studio because he he did a lot of recording sessions there, so I got to be involved, he had a whole network of of musicians that he worked with. So he had a girlfriend named Jenny Meltzer and she was a fantastic singer. Actually, I believe they were married at the time. I might've been going out, but they might've been married. Anyway, Jenny Meltzer was in a band called Pastiche and Nick was a great arranger and a great composer and he was helping them with their albums. So I got to be involved in those sessions uh, with Jenny and her singers, it was a trio it was Jenny Meltzer and now I'm going to I'm going to forget everyone's name right when you said that of course
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. but pastiche was the name of the band and they were they were just fantastic and nick was a great arranger and composer and helping them with the records and I was involved in those sessions with him and he was just nice enough to let me hang and and be involved and these are moments that you have to remember and remember these people that brought you along and and uh, I'm just grateful that I was able to be in the room, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, so where did you go from there?
0: So interactive audio. I worked there for I was about seven years, I think. I was there. I didn't make a lot of money working at that company. I I had to do other things on the side. Um, I think the most <laughs> the most I ever made with that. With that studio was, I think by the end I left. I was making maybe thirty-five thousand a year. You know that was about the top I got to. And so I was always doing side stuff, and I did a couple of interesting side things. A friend of mine who I graduated in the Chico program with uh, was named Kent Hooper, and he works in, in Nashville as a producer. He's a pretty accomplished guy out there and does really cool work. He's been in the business ever since he got out of Chico and he moved right to Nashville and set up his home studio and he's been doing production there ever since and he's he's super badass but at that point he had called me and I think this was maybe mid 90s he called me up and he said hey you want to do some uh, midi production work and I said yeah sure it sounds good and he goes he, he was working with Yamaha at the at the time and he was doing midi production for the Yamaha MU50 sound module and they were putting together like karaoke libraries for the you know for the their little tone module and he said yeah you can you know we'll pay you per per track and and uh, we need these things turned around in a couple of days and we'll just keep feeding feeding them to you as many as you want so he'd give you a list of pop songs and you just pick one and say and say that's the one I want to program I'll program that one so it was the worst job I've ever had in my life. I mean, the hardest <laughs> job I've ever had, but I said, I have to learn how to do this because this is it's going to be so good for me. I realized that at the time it was going to be a really good gig because you you had to figure out how to program a song on a MIDI module and make it sound really good. <laughs> you had to know how to do the MIDI programming. You had to know how to do the SysX you know, programming and all of this stuff had to be loaded into a little file and the song had to sound good. And it was the hardest gig I ever had. It was, it was cause you had to use your ears. You had to listen to the, the real track. You had to listen to every single instrument, the bass, the drums, everything and then program it note for note. Then you had to figure out how to come up with a melody line because you had to use the tone generator for the melody line, and that always sounded like crap. So you had to, how am I going to make the melody on this song sound good with a little MIDI module? And you just did the best you could and you made it sound as as musical as you could, but that was the hardest gig. It took like three or four days to do one song. I think they paid me like three or four hundred bucks per track. And when you got done with the thing, all of the sysx information had to be stored at the top of the file. So when you pressed play, it would load all the parameters of the song, like, you know. Uh, reverb and delay or whatever was on that track. And if if you got it wrong, there would be some errors. So there was another piece of software that you had to run your MIDI file through to check for errors. And every time I ran that thing through this piece of software, you'd get 20, 30 errors, and there could be zero errors. So you had to go back and find where your error was. And it was just a pain in the ass. But it was I, I knew it was good for me at the time to learn this stuff, because my ear just kept getting better and better and learning how to Hear stuff on tracks, and that was indispensable, I think, to my ear training.
1: It's great that you powered through, knowing that that was that was a good gig to do just just for the experience.
0: Yeah, it sucked, <laughs> but it was. I knew it was good for me because my programming chops got really good. I knew it was going to be helpful moving forward in the future. And then, of course, we were using, I think, Digital Performer at that time to do all the all the programming. So I learned Digital Performer. I think at one point I was using Studio Vision. So that was a fun painful side gig. Uh, At the time I was working for interactive audio. That was the interactive audio experience. So I finished up there. I think I'd spent about seven seven years there. And then that was coming to an end. I kind of wanted to do my own thing at that point. Earlier, I had met an artist who I'd worked on some demos with. And this was Way back in the garage days with my four track, and his name was uh, Tom Luce. And so, Tom Luce was an artist who he had come out from North Carolina after going to school. And we, way back in the day, worked on a demo on a four track, and then then we lost touch for a couple of years. I was coming to the end of my run at Interactive Audio, and Tom ended up coming back into town and contacted me, saying, Hey, I want to make a record. I said, That's funny. I'm just going on my own. I'd love to make a record with you. So, uh, we ended up making his first album which was initially called blue sage poets that was his first uh, his first band and we ended up making that album together um and it was my first full production album and and his first uh first one too and of course that went on to kind of do pretty well for for both of us and it was a great another great experience where we did the whole thing ourselves we hired session musicians and I started getting into the scene that way um, just by making that record I started meeting all these different people and all the different musicians around Steve Bowman played on that record oh uh, yeah it it was a it was a really good record and it, it did a lot for me in my career as as far as getting more gigs yeah
1: and just for the listener I'll I'll, I'll interrupt steve bowman was the first drummer in the counting crows he's a bay area guy He has since moved to Nashville and lives in Nashville at this time. I wanted to ask about this, making this record with uh, Tom Luce. What kind of a setup did you have to record? How did you do this on your own?
0: Where did you do it? What are the particulars? So it's kind of funny because you interviewed just recently Justin Weiss, who Mm. who I use for a lot of my mastering projects. And Justin told you his story about how he worked at, um, what was it, the... That, that that school that he worked at early in his uh, career. It right. was in San Francisco. I can't remember the name of the school. California Recording Institute. Recording something Institute, like that. CRI. Yeah, yeah. And he became one of the instructors there and he was telling that story. Well, that's how I met Justin because we decided to go in there to record some of the basic tracks. And Justin was in there and I'm not sure why we went there, but Somehow we did, just because we found out about it, and we were able to go in there and do the basic tracking on two-inch tape, did uh, Steve's drums there, we did the bass and some of the guitars there, and then the rest I was recording. I had my first home Pro Tools rig at that point, so I started recording tracks out of my I think my mom's garage in Palo Alto, and we set that up as a studio. And then Tom had a space up in San Francisco, up in um, Pacific Heights. He was in this fantastic house that was kind of an artist community house. And he had a little studio down there. We did all the vocals there. So we pieced the whole thing together. And then, of course, I mixed the whole thing on my, my Pro Tools rig.
1: You mixed it in the box then?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was my first first mix, uh, first album that I mixed completely on my own. What year was that? Uh, this was ninety nine, maybe I think ninety eight, ninety nine. We were working on that album, and then it came out. Wow. It came out around two thousand. But I had been working in Pro Tools since the Interactive Audio days. I'd been working in Pro Tools since probably ninety three, and that's kind of a funny story too, because at Interactive Audio we were beta testers for. Pro Tools um, and digital design. So we used to go down to Menlo Park to uh, Peter Goacher's office and go see what they were working on and tell them what we wanted to use it for. And and uh, what was the other guy's name? Evan Evan Brooks, I think, was the other founder of digital design. So we used to go down to their place in Menlo Park and go say, Hey, well, this is what we're using it for. This is what we wanted to do. And I remember walking into their office one time and seeing the first reverb plugin they had. It was insane to see this thing on the computer screen. It was making a reverb sound. We're like, how, do you, how are you doing that on a computer? That's unbelievable. <laughs> 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 it's not in a box outside. It's like it's actually happening in the software. So that was pretty fascinating. So yeah, we did a ton of beta testing for early versions of Pro Tools. And I was. I think we were in the beta program for years. And then I finally just stopped doing that because it became a bit of a pain in the ass.
1: Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They of course offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. You and Tom made this record. You mixed it in Pro Tools. Continue your journey there from, you know, doing this record at uh, CRI.
0: We had completed the record, I think, sometime around 99. At the same time, Tom started playing out. He put together a band. He got some contacts with Fog. And somehow he was able to get his album over to K fogg, and I remember he was telling me this story. He said, "I, I, I just—it would be so sweet if I could hear my song on the radio as I'm driving across Golden Gate Bridge, you know." And who is the the DJ at the time? It was very well known DJ. What Dave Maury. Maury? Dave Maury, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And he said, "Okay, well, cool. I'll let you know." And so Tom. I guess was at his house one day and Dave Morey called him up and said, Hey, I'm going to play your, ra- your song on the radio. Go ahead and get in your car, start driving across the Golden Gate. <laughs> and so Tom did that. And he, one of our songs was that we did was played on the radio. And it was that song good day, which ended up becoming a you know, somewhat of a hit song, and and it all kind of started steamrolling from there, and and people got really into this idea that here's an independent artist who's getting played on a big radio station, and he doesn't have a record deal, and he doesn't have anything going on; he's just an independent guy, and that was the start of his whole relationship with K and which was a fantastic thing for an independent artist at the at the time that just wasn't happening, and people got a hold of the story. And it just started to snowball. And they said, this is fantastic. And at that point, there was a a radio promo guy from Sony who had been working on the Train project. He had gotten Train broken on radio. His name was Joe Shuld. And so Joe Shuld got a hold of the album. And he goes, "This is a fantastic story. We can get you some more. Let's get you some more radio play." And and it started to snowball, and he started getting radio play all over the country as an unsigned artist, which was unheard of at the time. So it kind of started Tom's career as a as a professional uh, musician, and he was working, he was touring, he was you know he was doing well, and he got signed to a record deal at that point. Did you start to get more work as a result of your relationship with Tom? I did. Yeah, I did. I really did. I it, it kind of got me into the local scene as a as a producer and I started getting more work because of it. So it was it was it was good for all of us, you know. He got the record deal, I was getting more production work, which is what I wanted to do. Where were you doing the work out of? My mom's garage. <laughs>
1: well, you're still at your mom's I'm garage. I'm still at my damn. mom's
0: garage at that point. Yeah. Of course I was doing basic tracking in in other studios around around the bay, but that was it, most of it I was just doing in the box in Pro Tools in my mom's garage. I've been kind of doing it in the box ever since. You know, I think I gave up basic tracking to analog tape probably early 2000s. And I just started doing everything in the box around that time.
1: At what point did you leave your mom's garage?
0: <laughs> so then Tom's career started getting off the ground and he started doing that work. And then right when that happened, I got a call to uh, do some MIDI programming for Walter Afanasiev. So Walter had a studio up in San Rafael and uh, a friend of mine couldn't take the gig. He he was ill at the time and he it, my friend JD Riley who ended up passing away from cancer, he was going to take that gig but he was too sick at the time and so he called me up and he said, "Hey, do you want this gig? I just can't do it right now and if you want it, it's uh you can go up there and talk to him and we we have to explain who Walter is. Uh, Walter Afanasiev was is a producer, um, and he used to live up in San Fe. And he came from um, uh, Narda Michael Walden's studio at Tarpon. and he was a, a keyboard player, fantastic keyboard player for Narda. And then he went off on his own to become a producer. And I think some of his first clients out were Mariah Carey, Celine Dion, and Whitney Houston. And Whitney Houston, right? yeah. I think he was working. He was working on huge stuff back in the 90s. and
1: Yeah, huge 90s, uh, like diva-style pop records.
0: Yes, yeah. And uh, so I kind of jumped in there right as he had finished Celine Dion's huge song for Titanic, and he had won producer of the year <laughs> at that point. So, oh, my God. Yeah, so I kind of stepped in there right as all that was going on, and I was, I was a, a MIDI programmer uh, at his studio in San Rafael, so my job was to basically get all the sounds up in the studio and get ready for a session. So he would walk in and, and play the parts and I would have the sounds kind of loaded up. And he was using Studio Vision back then. So I kind of knew Studio Vision and I knew MIDI. And so all that hard work had paid off with the, <laughs> the Yamaha gig. I knew how to do that stuff. So, <laughs> so I stepped in there and, and it was pretty cool. You know, he would pay you per track and it was good money. And I was commuting from Palo Alto. I was going up to San Rafael every day and working.
1: That's and a haul.
0: It was brutal. Yeah. Sometimes I would sleep on his couch there and and uh, sometimes I would just drive all the way back. But I did that for not very long. I did that for about a year. And then he ended up moving to LA and he took his whole thing down there.
1: Interesting. And And- uh, any uh, takeaways from your experience with
0: Walter as far as studio work and the the craft of recording? Yes, it's the level that everybody was at was just amazing just to see that level of, um, of uh, th- that skill level. I mean, David Gleason was the engineer over there. He was super badass. And then Dan Shea was the other MIDI programmer who kind of I was I was getting groomed to take his position. But then, you know, everyone moved to L.A. I think Dan moved to New York. So that kind of ended for me. But just to see the level that they were at and to hear Mick Guzowski, is that? Mm. Yeah, Mick was yeah. mixing all of Walter's records at that time. And so they would be doing mixes over uh, like T1, you know, through the SSL console. And, and um, Mick had a SSL on his end and Walter had one in his studio. So Mick could be mixing on his end and we would hear exactly what he was hearing through through Walter's studio. So it was amazing it was it was everything was super high level you know everyone was good at what they were doing it was it was good to be in that situation and see that kind of level but yeah that was a good opportunity too that was it was a a great experience
1: so back to getting out of your mother's garage what how'd you do that
0: (laughs) Uh, because eventually you you opened up a studio I did so um I eventually ended up joining uh, Loose, and I went on tour with them for a bit after the second album. I, I produced the second album too. And after that album came out, I joined the band and we ended up going on tour. And another opportunity came up with the company, I don't r- know if you remember a company called Community Musician. This is No. They were a local uh, company doing CD duplication back in the 2000s. and. Hmm. and, and uh, their business model was CD duplication, but then they started a thing that was going to be kind of like the Craigslist of the music community. So you could go up there for all resources and find people to do you know, whatever you needed them to do. So th- they were trying to create this one-stop shop where you could do all of it in one one shop. So you could get your CDs made, you could uh, do your production, you could do your artwork, you could do everything. So the guy that um, that took over that business I knew because I had worked on a record with him, and he uh, called me when I was on the road and said, hey, I'm building a studio. You want to come and be the producer? I said, that sounds great. You know, that sounds wonderful, but I'm on tour, and when I get back, we can figure it out. And so I got back from tour, and they were building out a space on Napoleon Street in the Bayshore area. Okay. So I show up there to check out what they were building, and there was nothing except an empty warehouse. (laughs) and there was a bunch of sheetrock and a bunch of plywood and a bunch of two-by-fours. I said, huh, you guys aren't done with the studio yet. Okay. He said, no, we're not done yet, but uh, maybe you can consult with us and help us build this thing out. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll I'll, I'll get involved. And I started helping out with kind of designing a room that might work for what they were trying to do, and one thing led to another, and then I was working on this project full-time, And uh, we ended up building out a studio in the space on Napoleon Street. Of course, we got to a point in the business when the CD, (laughs) the CD business fell apart, right? No one was buying CDs. It couldn't sustain anymore because no one was ordering CDs and it just all fell apart. Napster was happening. Napster was happening. Uh, The CD market fell out. And that was their whole plan was to kind of sustain this thing through, through the CD business. So the owner of this company ended up moving to Texas and said, don't worry, I'll keep funding it. <laughs> and it kind of ended at that point And we were about 75% done with the with the room. And I, I was kind of stuck there saying, what the hell am I going to do now? And so once the funding dried up, I just said, let's just finish this thing. Let's just get it done. And I employed the help of local musicians and people to, to help me finish this thing off. And and there were a couple other workers there who were doing the CD part of it. They weren't getting their paychecks paid, so they finally bailed. They just left. So I was kind of the last man standing, and I got the thing finished. And
1: I'm confused a little bit, because so this guy gets you to consult and build out this space, and then he moves. Yep. Did he have the lease on the place?
0: He did, yep. And he, he left the lease, so there was back rent owed when the landlord finally approached me and said, hey, we're owed two months' rent, so... You got to get this paid. So I'm sitting there going, "Oh my God, what other bills have we been left with?" Because I was just the producer; I didn't have anything to do with the financial part of it.
1: I mean, were you <laughs> tempted just to walk away and go, "This is not my, not my circus"?
0: I had too much invested of my sweat equity at that point. I, I had too much invested to walk away, and so I, I, I just said, "We're going to get this thing done. We're going to figure out how to how to make it work." You know, and I had enough kind of business of my own that I could kind of keep going and, and piece stuff together. And once we finished out the room, I could start bringing in clients there, you know, and it it wasn't done. We were bringing people in there and it still wasn't finished, but I had to generate some kind of revenue. So, so I just kept at it and kept at it and, you know, suffered and was poor. And eventually it started to, uh, to make a little money. And, and once, once we got the space done, then, you know, I, I I was, I was in there working, and it's been a roller coaster ever since. But, you know, I'm still there and still doing it.
1: And how many years have you been there?
0: I've been there, I think, at least 10 years now. For
1: the listener, I'm sorry if I haven't said this. This is in San Francisco. I've been there rehearsing with uh, Matt Lingwa from the from the band The Welcome Matt. We've both played that's, with Matt. That's right. So what about the the looming possibilities of that space getting, you getting kicked out? And
0: That was the thing that always kept me up at night. Is there going to be a fire? Am I going to get ripped off? Am I going to get kicked out? I mean, all of these things, they all they all keep you up at night. Less so now than they used to. But that was my biggest concern back then was like, uh, you know, uh, am I going to lose all of this stuff? And, but I don't know. I, I feel like in the last maybe four or five years, I've, I've come to a spot in my career where it just seems a little bit more solid. And I don't know why that is, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm, what, I'm, now, why do you feel it's
1: more solid from, I mean, from the encroachment of condos going up in San Francisco on every corner? And, yeah, I mean, my listeners know it's no big secret. I've talked about it for the last couple of years here for the, on the show that San Francisco has gone through a huge metamorphosis. And a lot of what you talked about, about music scene and yeah. Uh, post production places and various studios and schools a lot of that has dried up yeah,
0: and I hear this all the time from from various engineers and producers and people in the business and you know I have to say that the best thing that I could have done with my career was to stay diversified. I did that from the get go and it wasn't a conscious decision. It just happened because I worked for Interactive Audio, and Interactive Audio was doing all kinds of different work. That was back on Natoma the Street. They were doing post-production. They were doing video games. They were doing sound design. They were doing voiceover. They were doing everything, um, music production. We were doing everything in that studio, and it was really cool because it kept me well-rounded, and it kept me interested in working on in different, uh, different um projects. Uh, you know, one day you're doing sound design for a video game, the next day you're doing uh, music production for a industrial or whatever it was. Um, and the funny thing that happened out of that too was that when once I left Interactive Audio, my ex-boss started a game company, a, a toy company, or he joined a toy company called KID. And he started sending me all the audio work for these toys. And he ended up having a hit game, a hit toy called Bop It. I don't know if your kids ever played with that thing, but it was it was just a. It was their hit. It was their gold record. It was their platinum record. They had had this enormous hit with that toy. It kind of put them on the map as as toy developers. And I I kept that in my back pocket. You know, all these years, they just kept calling me for uh, to do audio work for their toys. So I kept doing that. I kept them as client forever. It was nice to have these various things that you could kind of rely on throughout the years. You know, it just I think it it just kept me employed these various little weird projects that kept coming in like toys and video games. and So that
1: diversification took hold long ago.
0: Yeah, it did. It did. It was kind of from the get-go. As much as I wanted to be just straight up music producer all the time, I always kept these little things around um, just because I know they kind of generated revenue. And it, they were also interesting too. I, I enjoyed doing these projects. So
1: Music is great, but there are times when it's nice to do something like a little off from music, you know? Absolutely. A little audio cleanup or, you know, a voiceover or whatever.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 you know, we all, I think we all go through that early in our careers where it's like, no, I have to do one thing. I have to be the best at being an engineer or best at being a producer or best at this and best at that. And I I just wanted to be interested, you know, keep interesting things coming in, things that I, I really wanted to work on. Um, some of them are, are not so interesting, but, uh, uh, but a lot of them, you could always get something out of it. You could always learn something from it. And I just, as as long as I was interested and I was learning, then I would do it. How would you prioritize what gigs to take and what gigs not to take? I didn't have that luxury. I I never had that luxury up until maybe a few years ago. I I, I just didn't. You know, you had to take everything just to stay afloat.
1: Ah, always said yes.
0: Yes, absolutely. I I, I have a hard time saying no to this day, but you know, I'm a little bit better at it now.
1: Shout out to our friends over at Roswell pro audio who helped make the working class audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their mini K 47 mic, which is priced at two 99 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So If you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com, and they do offer free shipping, but if you really want to help our cause with them, make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCAFREESHIP, and that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Class Audio. So there it is. Check it out, roswellproaudio.com. Let's talk about business and money What have you learned and how do you operate to this day with regards to putting a value on your time, on the projects that you take? I'm sure you've done some projects where you thought, wow, I really did that for far too cheap.
0: Yeah, I try to keep my rate to hourly. I really try to do that for every project, no matter what it is. So I offer that as the first option. If they cannot do the hourly option, then I will try to negotiate something that, that works best for both of us. But so far, it's worked pretty good on the hourly the hourly option. You, you'd be surprised when you say, this is my rate. This is what it's probably going to cost you. And that's it. Go from there. And they usually say, yes, great. Sounds good. I don't know. I, I, I hear that a lot from a lot of people that just doesn't work for them. But for some reason, I've been able to kind of maintain that. And it, it seems to work for me. So... I, w- I would continue to do it that way. I think the only spec deal I ever did was that first loose album. That was the only job I ever did on spec. And it ended up paying off because he got a record deal. And so I got a little bit of money from him, his signing, his signing uh, the record deal.
1: Was that a negotiated thing up front?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We had lawyers and the whole thing and, uh, and it, it ended up working out because he got to deal with network records. And so I got a percentage of the signing, the signing money and, Yeah, it worked out pretty good.
1: What has your relationship been with money and money management over the years while trying to run a commercial
0: place? Definitely do not overspend. I'm so not a gear guy. I'm just, I've never been a gear guy. I buy things out of necessity. I try not to just buy things because, whoa, that's cool. And that's the hot new thing. It's And I'm glad that I'm not a gear guy because you can fall into that trap of like, you need to have this or I got to have the latest. I got to have this and I got to have that. And I'm sure gear companies hate me and they hate to hear this, but it's like so much of of, of the final product is in the people that make it. The way something sounds is in the way the guitar player plays it, the way the drummer plays it. And it's like, I don't, it doesn't matter what kind of kit they're playing on. It, it matters how they play it and is the emotion coming through. And that to me is everything. It's like, I don't care what kind of recording equipment or microphone or what this is. And I, if the emotion and the performance is there, that's everything. That's worth all of it. So I've never really been a gear guy. I, I just kind of buy out of necessity. I need this you know, to do this specific task, then I'll get it.
1: Uh-huh. And how do you make your decisions about what you're going to buy?
0: I I just try to research as much as possible, try to get user reviews. I'm on gear sluts all the time, kind of reading what people say about gear and, and is it is it ultimately going to serve the purpose that I need it? to serve? And and is it going to be easy to use? (laughs) Because I I like things to be really easy and really straightforward. And I don't like to clutter things up. And, And this is part of the business model too. It's like, you have to make it as straight ahead and as painless for the client as possible. And if you're dicking around with gear all the time, it's the worst thing you can possibly do in a session. It's the worst thing you can possibly do with the client around. It's like you just want everything to be really smooth and really straight ahead and really comfortable for the client. And that's what I try to do every time.
1: Don't overthink
0: it. No, no, don't overthink it. And there's usually not a budget to overthink it. You have to make things happen quickly and and, and the smoother you can make them happen, then I think the client will end up always coming back. When you're saying that, when you're saying
1: make it as smooth as possible, do you have things ready to go?
0: Yes. Yeah. I try to set up before the session so that when they walk in we're making music or doing whatever the project is as fast as possible. We're we're getting to work quickly. And I eat that setup time I don't charge for it. And um, but I I can set up pretty quickly these days so it's I'm not spending more than an hour setting setting up everything, mics, um and uh I just try to have things ready to go very quickly. Uh, to me, it's, it's, I want to get to the creation part of it as fast as possible. To me, that's kind of my whole thing. I love, I love to be, I love for everyone to be in the creative moment as much as possible, instead of thinking about anything else, you know, turn off your cell phones, try to get in the moment, try to be in the creative moment. Don't, don't, you know, be distracted by anything, gear, by microphones, by any of the stuff. Just think about the creative process and do that for as long as possible. It sounds
1: like your the musician side of you really um drives a lot of that.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think Walter Afanasieff used to he used to laugh at me because I was trying to rush things along when he was playing, Oh, <laughs> come on, no, stay in it. Stay in the moment. Let's get this. Let's, you know, he says, man, just chill out, man. It's gonna be all right. <laughs> it was funny.
1: What about your personal life? Have you managed to carve out a life or do you feel like you spend each and every moment doing
0: this? Um, I'm lucky because I have a wonderful wife who is also runs her own business and she works probably twice as many hours as I do. So I have no issue staying in the studio until midnight or whatever. The joke is that I come home at 11 PM and I walk into her office and she like, no, 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 no. I need another hour. Give me another hour. <laughs> so there's, there, uh, you know, and we don't have kids. Our kids are, are the, are the business, you know, the business yeah. take our 24 hour care. And so she has her own, uh, her own business that she's trying to manage. And I'm trying to manage mine. And and we're so uh, busy all the time that, yeah, we have to force ourselves to take breaks and, and go away. My wife's kind of an all or nothing personality. We're either going on a long vacation or we're working. That's it. There's no weekend getaways. There's no, you know, we don't go away for two days. We don't go away for a day. That's unheard of. We'll go away for three weeks and that's it.
1: And, sh- and shut everything and shut down. Shut
0: everything down. That's it. Wow. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Any particular habits or routines or things you do to, that entertain you, inspire you?
0: I'm reading a book, and this is my biggest inspiration right now, is there's a book called Reading Jazz. And I can't remember the author's name, Gottlieb, I think it is. It's a big, thick book. And it's basically, he's put together a bunch of autobiographies from various musicians over the, over the history of jazz or so early on through, through modern, I think through modern, I'm only literally like halfway through the book and I've been reading it for years. I, it's just something I pick up every time I wanna get inspired because it's usually about music written directly by the artist. Um, and so they're talking about that time in music and that period and what it was like to be there creating music at that time. And it's such a fantastic read. I, I'd recommend this to anybody. It's, it's called Reading Jazz. Every time I pick it up, I just get inspired. You can read each chapter is a different artist, and they talk about that time period in music. You know, the bebop era, uh, whatever, whatever era they're they're talking about. But it's it's a fantastic read. So I kind of keep that one around when I need to be inspired that's my main thing that's it
1: <laughs> what about what about health health wise do you do anything to to keep yourself healthy, or do you, or or not?
0: Yeah, no, I, I do. I just turned fifty this year, so I I I, I promised myself I wanted to go into my fifties feeling good. So I started running some years ago, and that's my main thing is just running. You know, do my basic basic stuff at home. I I, I say everything in moderation. Good, do whatever Including you want. exercise. Yeah, everything in moderation. You don't kill yourself, you know. It's like I don't need to kill myself these days. Just if I feel good that's, that's, that's it. I, I feel good. Then I'm, I'm happy. I mean, I, I kind of like want to do this for a long time. So I figure if I stay. I was going to
1: say, what do the next five to
0: 10 years look like for you? Do you think? <sighs> wow. It's just, that's such a hard one. We, we, we think about, we, we hope for retirement. My wife and I, so we we kind of are, are talking and figuring it out, saying, is this even a possibility <laughs> in the Bay Area? Probably not. But anyway, I love what I do. So I don't feel like, to me, it doesn't feel like work. So I could keep doing this until I drop off. I'd be fine.
1: Have you considered doing it outside of the Bay Area, leaving the Bay Area at any time?
0: Uh, the only reason we discuss that is because my wife's from the East Coast and her mother's out there and she's aging and my mother's out here and she's aging and... So we have to have that conversation. We have to discuss, you know, what what is reality? Is reality staying here? Is it moving back East? Is it, so far, what I've, the conclusion I've come to is that I'd have to start from scratch if I moved from the Bay Area, you know? I think uh, I think that could be healthy for some people, but I, I, I'm pretty happy where I am. I love San Francisco, I love the Bay Area, and I'm working, so I'll keep going for as long as I can.
1: Well, on that note, I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and be on the show. It's it's uh, great to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. And uh, <laughs> there's only a bridge between us, uh, well, a bridge and a tunnel between us right yeah. now. And I could, I could have gone over to San Francisco today, but just I know you have a session today, and, and I have some mixed work that I got to get
0: done. So... Uh, thanks for thanks for meeting me on Skype no I appreciate the call man and we, we we don't see enough of each other so it's like we're buried in our little studio so we gotta get out more well thanks again and great to see you thanks a lot Matt appreciate it okay you take care All right, I'll see ya
1: Adam Rossi here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Thanks for being with me today. If you haven't stopped by workingclassaudio.com, please do and uh, maybe uh, click on one of our sponsors' banners there. They help make the show possible. That's Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, com, and the License Lab. And we got to thank our friends, Mr. Cliff Truesdell for the music and Mr. Chuck Smith on the voice. I appreciate their efforts. And uh, thanks for stopping by again. We'll see you next week. Take care.